Relic Radio. This is Relic Radio Sci-Fi, old-time radio science fiction stories from RelicRadio.com. Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. This is Michael Hansen with a MindWeb story, this time from the volume The Book of Gordon Dixon. This is his story, The Man from Earth. The director of the crossroads world of Dunbar had no other name, nor needed any, and his handsomeness and majesty were not necessarily according to the standards of the human race. But then he had never heard of the human race. He sat in his equivalent of a throne room day by day while the representatives of a thousand passing races conducted their business below and before the dais on which his great throne chair sat. Next to the director's chair... On his left was a shimmering mirror surface suspended in midair so that by turning his head only slightly, he could see himself reflected at full length. Sometimes he looked and saw himself. But at this moment now, he looked outward. In his mind's eye, he looked beyond the throne room and the balcony and the steps without. He saw in his imagination all the planet-wide city surrounding and the five other worlds of this solar system which were the machine shops and granaries of this crown world of Dunbar. This world and system he ruled as too mild a word. This world he owned and wore like a ring on his finger. All of it seen in his mind's eye had the dull tinge of familiarity and sameness. He moved slightly the index one of his four-jointed fingers, of which he had three, with an opposed thumb on each hand. The male adult of his own race, who currently filled a role something like that of Chamberlain, stepped forward from behind the throne chair. The director did not look at the Chamberlain, knowing he would be there. The director's thin lips barely moved in his expressionless pale green face as he said, It has been some moments... Is there still nothing new? And the low voice of the chamberlain at his ear said, Director of all, 
Since you last asked, there has been nothing on the six worlds which has not happened before. Only the landing here at the throne city of, of a single alien of a new race. He has passed into the city now, omitting to sacrifice at a purple shrine, but otherwise behaving as all behave on your worlds. Is there anything new about his failure to sacrifice? Oh, the failure is a common one. It has been many generations since anyone seriously worshipped at a purple shrine. The sacrifice is a mere custom of our port. Strangers not knowing of it invariably fail to light incense on the cube before the purple. Is there a penalty for this? The penalty by ancient rule is death. But for hundreds of years it has been remitted on payment of a small fine. There is value in old customs. Old customs long fallen into disuse seem almost like something new when they are revived. Let the ancient penalty be re-established. From this transgressor as well as all others after? The director moved his index finger in silent assent and dismissal. The chamberlain stepped backward and spoke to the under-officers who were always waiting. The director, sated with looking out over the hall, turned his gaze slightly to his own seated image in the mirror surface at his left. He saw there an individual a trifle over seven feet in height, seated in a tall carven chair with ornate armrests. Four-fingered hands lay upon the curved ends of the armrests. The arms, the legs, the body was covered in a slim, simple garment of sky blue. From the neck of the garment emerged a tall and narrow head with lean features, a straight, almost lipless mouth, narrow nose and greenish, hairless skull. The eyes were golden, enormous, and beautiful. But neither the eyes nor the face showed any expression. The faces of the chamberlain and the guards and others of the race sometimes showed expressions. But the director's face? Never. He was several hundreds of years old and would live until some rare accident killed him or until he became weary of life. The director had never known what it was to be sick. He had never known cold, hunger, or discomfort. He had never known fear, hatred, loneliness, or love. He watched himself now in the mirror, for he posed an unending enigma to himself, an enigma that alone relieved the boredom of his existence. He did not attempt to investigate the enigma. He only savored it as a connoisseur might savor fine wine. The image in the mirror he gazed upon was the image of a being who could find no alternative but to consider himself as God. Will Mostyn was broken-knuckled and wrinkled about the eyes, the knuckles he had broken on human and alien bones fighting for what belonged to him. The wrinkles about the eyes had come from the frowning harshness of expression evolved from endless bargains driven. Will had heard of Dunbar through a race of interstellar traitors called the Kayaka, heavy-bodied, lion-featured, and honest. Will had come alone, and he was the first from Earth to reach it. 
From this one trip, he could well make enough to retire and not have to leave his family on earth again. The Kiyakas were honest and had taught him the customs of the Dunbar port. They had sent him to Kal Don, one of their own people on Dunbar, who would act as Will's agent there. They had forgotten the small matter of the purple shrine. The custom was all but obsolete. The fine was nominal. They had instead talked of larger transactions and values. Passing through the terminal building of the port, Will saw a cube of metal, a purple cloth hanging on the wall above it, and small purple slivers that fumed and reeked. He passed at a good distance. Experience had taught him not to involve himself with the religions and customs of peoples he did not know. He reached the home of the Kayakan agent. Will had set up a balance of credit on several Kayakan worlds. Caldon would buy for him on Dunbar against that credit. They were beginning a discussion of what was available on Dunbar that would be best for Will to purchase, speaking in the stellar lingua franca, the trading language among the stars. Abruptly, they were interrupted by a voice from one of the walls speaking in a tongue Will did not understand. Caldon listened, answered, and turned his heavy, leonine face on Will. We must go downstairs, he said. And Caldon led Will back to the room which led to the street before his home. Waiting there were two of the native race in black short robes, belted at the waist with silver belts. A black rod showed in a sort of silver pencil case attached to the belt of each native. And one of them said, Stranger and alien, you are informed that you are under arrest. Will looked at them and opened his mouth. But Caldon was already speaking in the native tongue. And after a little while, the natives bowed shortly and went out. Caldon turned back to Will. Did you see in the terminal... Caldon described the purple shrine, and Will nodded. And did you go near it? No, I always steer clear of such things unless I know about them. I don't understand, but you are my guest, and my duty is to protect you. We'd better go see an acquaintance of mine, one who has more influence here in the throne city than I do. He led Will out to one of the automated vehicles, and on their way to the home of the acquaintance, he answered Will's questions by describing the custom of the Purple Shrine. I don't understand. I should have been able to pay your fine to the police and settle it, but they had specific orders to arrest you and take you in. Well, uh, why didn't they then? You are my guest. I've taken on the responsibility of your surrender at the proper time while they fulfill my request for the verification of the order to arrest you. Uh, do you think it's something really important? No. No, I'm sure it is all a mistake. They stopped before a building very much like the home of Caldone. Cal led Will up a ramp to a room filled with oversized furniture. From one large chair rose a narrow-bodied, long-handed alien with six fingers to a hand. His face was narrow and horse-like. He stood better than seven and a half feet in jacket and trousers of a dark red color, and a dagger hung at his belt. 
You are my guest as always, Caldone, and welcome as the guest of my guest is... And he turned to Will, speaking to Cal. Uh, what is its name? His name, said Cal. His name is Will Mow. And his own Kayakan tongue failed the English ST sound. His name is Will Mausen. Welcome. I am Avoa. Uh, what is it? Something I don't understand. And Cal switched to the native tongue of Dunbar, and Will was left out of the conversation. Caldon and Avoa talked some little while. I will check. Come tomorrow early, Caldon. Uh, bring it with you. Him. I will bring him. Uh, of course, of course. Come together. I'll have news for you then. It can be nothing serious. Cal and Will left and came back to the balcony above the courtyard of Cal's home. They sat talking. Uh, are you sure it's nothing to worry about? I'm sure. And Caldone fingered one of his narcotic candies and thick fingers. I'm sure they have a strict but fair legal code here. And if there is any misunderstanding, Avoa can resolve it. He has considerable influence. Shall we return to talk of business? So they talked as the interior lights came on. And later they ate their different meals together, wills from supplies he had brought from his ship, and parted for the night. When he woke in the morning, Will felt better. Caldon seemed to him to be quite sensible and undisturbed. They rode over to the home of Avoa together, and Will took the opportunity he had neglected before to pump Cal about the city as they rode through it. When they entered the room where they had met Avoa the day before, the tall alien was dressed in clothing of a lighter, harsher red, but seemed the same in all other ways. Well, uh, what did you find out the situation is? Avoa stared back at Will for a moment, and then turned and began to speak rapidly to Cal in the native tongue. Cal answered. After a moment, they both stopped and looked at Will without speaking. Uh, what, what's happened? What, what, what is it? I'm sorry. It seems that nothing can be done. I am sorry. Uh, very sorry, but it is a situation out of my control. I can do nothing. Why? Uh, what, what's wrong? You told me their legal system was fair. I, I didn't know about the shrine. Yes, yes, but this is not a matter for their law. Their director has given an order. Uh, director? The one on the throne? Uh, what's he got to do with it? It was his command. The ancient penalty was to be enforced after he heard about your omission at the shrine. From now on, newcomers will be warned. They are fair here. Fair? Fair? What about me? Doesn't this director know about me? What is he anyway? These people here control trade for light years in every direction. Not because of any virtue in themselves, but because of the accident of their position here among the stars. They know this, so they need something, a symbol, something to set up 
to reassure themselves of their right position. In all else, they are reasonable. Their symbol is the director. They identify with him as being all-powerful over things in the universe. The director's slightest whim is obeyed without hesitation. The director is not in the least irresponsible. He is sane and of the highest intelligence. But the only law he knows is his own. He is all but impotent. Ordinarily, he, he, he does nothing. We interest and amuse him, and he is bored. So he lets us trade here with impunity. But if he does act, there is no appeal. It is a risk we all take. You are not the only one. Uh, wait, there must be someone I can appeal to. Caldone, uh, I'm your guest. You are my guest, but I can't protect you against this. It's like a natural, physical force, a great wind, an earthquake against which I would be helpless to protect any guest or even myself. Pure chance. The chance of the director hearing about you and the shrine when he did has selected you. All those who face the risk of trading among the stars know the chance of death. You must have figured the risk as a good trader should. Not, not like this. I must go. I have appointments on the throne room balcony. Caldone, give it anything that will make these last hours comfortable and that my house will supply. Remember, you must surrender it before midday to the police. No, if nobody else can save me, then, then I want to see him. Him? The director. I, I'll appeal to him. No. No, it is never done. No one speaks to him. Wait. Wilma Zone is my guest. It is not my guest. I am your guest. It is already dead. And being dead can have no further effect upon the rest of us. You waste your credit with me. Still, Cal neither spoke nor moved. Avoa turned and went out. Cal said, My guest, you have little cause for hope. After that, he sat silent. Will paced the room... Occasionally, he glanced at the chronometer on his wrist, adjusted the local time. It showed the equivalent of two and three-quarters hours to noon when the wall chimed and spoke in Avoa's voice. You have your audience. I would still advise against hope. Worlds cannot afford to war against worlds to protect their people, and there is no reason for a director to change his mind. He took Will in one of the small automated vehicles to the throne room. Inside the portal, at the steps leading up to the balcony, he left Will. And Cal told him, I'll wait for you above. Good luck, my guest. Will turned. At the far end of the room, he saw the dais and the director. 
He went toward it. Through the crowd that at first had hardly noticed him but grew silent and parted before him as he proceeded until he could hear in the great and echoing silence of the hall the sound of his own footsteps as he approached the dais, the seated figure and the throne, behind which stood natives with the silver pencil cases and black rods at their silver belts. He came at last to the edge of the dais and stopped, looking up. Above him, the high greenish skull, the narrow mouth, the golden eyes leaned forward to look down at him, and he saw them profiled in the mirror surface alongside. The profile was no more remote than the living face it mirrored. Will opened his mouth to speak, but one of the natives behind the throne, wearing the Chamberlain's silver badge, stepped forward as the finger of the director gestured, and the Chamberlain said, Wait! And then he turned and spoke behind him. Will waited, and the silence stretched out long in the hall. After a while, there was a movement, and two natives appeared, one with a small chair, one with a tube-shaped container of liquid. Sit. Sit and drink. The director has said it. Will found himself seated, and with a tube in his hand, an odor of alcohol diluted with water came to his nostrils and for a moment a burst of wild laughter trembled inside him. Then he controlled it and sipped from the tube. What do you say? I... I haven't intentionally committed any crime. The director knows this. I came here on business, the same sort of business that brings so many. Certainly this world and the, and the trading done on it are tied together. Without Dunbar, there could be no trading place here. And without the trading, would Dunbar and its other sister world still be the same? The director is aware of this. Uh, certainly, if the traders here respect the laws and customs of Dunbar, shouldn't Dunbar respect the lives of those who, who come to trade? Will stared at the golden eyes hanging above him, but he could read no difference in them, no response. They seemed to wait still. He took a deep breath. Death is... He stopped. The director had moved on his throne. He leaned slowly forward until his face hung only a few feet above Will's. He spoke in the trade tongue in a slow, deep, unexpectedly resonant voice. Death is the final new experience. He sat slowly back in his chair, and the chamberlain spoke. You will go now. Will sat staring at him, the tube of alcohol and water still in his grasp. You will go. You are free until midday and the moment of your arrest. Are, are you all insane? You can't do this sort of thing without an excuse. My people take care of their own... It is understandable that, that you do not want to die. But you will go now or I will have you taken away. Something broke inside Will. It was like the last effort of a man in a race who feels the running man beside him pulling away and tries but cannot match the pace. Dazedly, dully, Will turned. Blindly, he walked the first few steps back toward the distant portal. Wait! The Chamberlain's voice turned him around. Come back. The director will speak. Numbly... He came back. You will not die. You will live. 
And when I send for you from time to time, you will come again and talk to me. It is interesting that you do not understand me. It is interesting to explain myself to you. You give me reasons why you should not die. And there are no reasons. There is only me. I will make you understand. It is I who am responsible for all things that happen here. It is my whim that moves them. There is nothing else. It was my whim that the penalty of the shrine's neglect should be imposed once more. Since I had decided so, it was unavoidable that you should die. For when I decide, all things follow inexorably. There is no other way, no other thing. But then, as you were leaving, another desire crossed my mind. That you might interest me again on future occasions. And once more, all things followed. If you were to interest me in the future, you could not die. And so, you are not to. And now you understand. A faint thoughtfulness clouded the director's golden eyes. I have done something with you this day that I have never done before. It is quite new. I have made you know what you are in respect to what I am. I have taken a creature not even of my own people and made it understand it has no life, no death, no reasons of its own except those my desires desire. He stopped speaking, but Will still stood rooted where he was. Do not be afraid. I killed you, but I have brought another creature who understands to life in your body, one who will walk this world of mine for many years before he dies. A sudden brilliance, like a sheet of summer lightning, flared in Will's head, blinding him. He heard his own voice shouting in a sound that was rage without meaning. He flung his right arm forward and up as his sight cleared and saw the liquid in the tube he had held splash itself against the downward-gazing, expressionless face above him and the container bounced harmlessly from the sky-blue robe below the face. The director had not moved. The watered alcohol dripped slowly from his nose and chin, but his features were unchanged. His hands were still. No finger on either hand stirred. He continued to gaze at Will. After a long second, Will turned. He was not quite sure what he had done, but something sullen and brave burned redly in him. He began to walk up the long aisle through the crowd toward the distant portal. In that whole hall, he was the only thing moving. The thousand different traitors followed him with their eyes, but otherwise none moved. No one made a sound. From the crowd, there was silence. From the balcony overlooking and the steps beyond the entrance, there was silence. Step by echoing step, 
Will walked the long length of the hall and passed through the towering archway into the bright day outside. He made it as far as halfway down the steps before, inside the hall, the director's finger lifted. The message of that finger was flashed to the ranked guards outside, and the black rods shot Will down with flame in the sunlight. On the balcony above, overlooking those steps, a voa stirred at last, turning his eyes from what was left of Will and looking down at Caldon beside him. What was... Uh, I'm sorry, I do not even know the proper pronoun. He, said Caldon, still looking down at the steps. Uh, yes, he. Uh, what did he call himself? You told me, but I do not remember. I should have listened, but I did not. Uh, what did you say? What uh, was he? Caldon lifted his heavy head and looked up at last. He... Was a man, said Caldon. From the book of Gordon Dixon, published by Daw, you've heard the story titled The Man from Earth. I am Michael Hansen, technical operation for this broadcast by Mary Kay Payne. Mindwebs is a production of WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. That's the show for this week, but don't forget there are thousands more like it at relicradio.com. Horror, strange tales, science fiction, crime, all available for free like donate to relic radio and help keep it all free you can do that through the website as well visit donate.relicradio.com to find out more and to see the special downloadable sets that are available my thanks to those who have donated and thanks for listening today talk to you again next week 